Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is my friend, the incredible Rosa Shang. FAIA Lead AP BDNC, Vice President, Higher Ed Studio Leader, and Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Smith Group. I don't know how many more she can add after her name. Rosa serves multiple roles as Higher Education Studio Leader in Northern California and National Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. She is also the founder of Equity by Design and the first Asian-American woman to serve as AIA San Francisco president in 2018 in the organization's 136-year history. Recognized as a designer, architect, strategist, and thought leader, she is known for delivering design solutions with transformational impact in the built environment. When asked, what type of architecture do you do? Her answer, the kind that's never been done before. This mindset has resulted in a variety of award-winning and internationally acclaimed projects, including the aesthetically minimal, highly technical glass structure for Apple's original high-profile retail stores, the revolutionary workplace of the future in the Pixar Animation Studios' Stephen P. Jobs building, and her current work to advance equitable and sustainable design solutions for institutions of higher learning in California. These include the Lori I. Loki Graduate School of Business at Mills College and STEM projects at UC Davis, San Francisco State, and many community colleges to advance underrepresented students in academic persistence and future-ready resilience. 
Rosa has presented her work both nationally and overseas, including Why Equity Matters for Everyone, a New Value Proposition for Architecture, and in 2020, The Jedi Agenda, an Intersectional Approach to Designing for a Just Future. In 2019, Rosa was honored by Metropolis Game Changer. Additionally, she has been featured in Architect Magazine, Architectural Record, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, including Talkset, ILFI Living Futures Conference, Harvard GSD, Stanford University, South by Southwest, TEDx Philadelphia, and KQED, NPR, and the Cannes Lions Festival. A little bit about equity by design. Fueled by persistent gender and racial inequity that has perpetuated the lack of representation in the architectural profession, Rosa founded Equity by Design in 2013 and then continued her advocacy as board director and subsequently the 2018 president of San Francisco AIA. Her efforts have greatly contributed to a national movement to advance justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in professional practice and the design outcomes in the built environment for underserved communities. Equity by Design initiated three major research projects to identify pinch points, the challenges and barriers to leadership advancement. The 2018 Equity in Architecture survey resulted in nearly 15,000 respondents, has catalyzed similar surveys in the engineering and construction industry. The resulting efforts have initiated advocacy and activism to advance underrepresented identities in architecture including women, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, in order to retain talent, advance the profession, and communicate the value of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in designing to our communities. The project we are going to talk about today is the UC Davis Teaching and Learning Complex in Davis, California, completed in January 2022. The Teaching and Learning Complex TLC, is a new classroom building at University of California, Davis. Situated at the heart of campus and at the nexus of academic and social life, the TLC sets a precedent for future development on the Davis campus and is a hub for student instruction, study, and gathering. The -the state-of-the-art facility's design ambitiously champions integrated strategic student success and sustainability goals. The team is looking forward to attending the official ribbon-cutting ceremony this fall and to submit this project for many industry awards. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the project, you know, some of the basic stats, what the goals, the kind of the story is of this building. Sure, sure. So it's a project at the heart of campus, and if you're familiar or maybe not with your audience about the campus culture of UC Davis. It's an Aggie school, so agriculture foundation, still very deep in the roots of that with the Madavi Center Institute for winemaking and agriculture and different studies in biological and environmental focused pursuits and also STEM. This school is a bike friendly culture, a lot of sustainability goals, et cetera. So This new classroom building was in the making for the last 20 years, and they finally got the funding to do it. In the site where it took over, there were temporary buildings built in the 70s, 60s and 70s that were meant to be temporary structures, 
but they're kind of, you know, falling apart. So there are some interesting building structures with space frame technology, you know, the Buckminster Fuller, they're trying to get all that. But this building represents this idea of bringing teaching and learning to another level for student persistence and student belonging. And those are some pretty important themes in the building itself. Approximately 2,000 students are going to access this building. What are some of the interior spaces in this building? We joke around, we call it the box of chocolates of classrooms, (laughs) because literally there is every different kind or varietal of classroom typology, size, et cetera, to enable students to learn at their best, right? So if you learn best in a larger lecture hall format, that type of room is optimized so that the view angles are great. You have a lot of room to spread out. You're not crammed into a tight classroom. There's daylight that's enhancing your ability to pay attention and large screens everywhere, right? And this idea of even the seats swivel around so that you can do a small group huddle and talk about what was being taught and then you know report back out. There's also smaller classrooms, right, for more intimate learning and hands-on learning. And then there's also what they call the laboratory of learning, which we nicknamed the sandbox, which is actually exploring the future of teaching and learning in the building itself, which is pretty amazing. The building is a lab, if you will, for the future of teaching and learning. That's cool. I noticed one of the things in the notes that they're using the flexibility of mobile furniture, which I worked on a project a number of years ago that we did something similar to that. And it was a really novel idea. So they could do exactly that, move things around to make it work for whatever you're doing in the moment. Absolutely. Which I'm assuming is the intent. That's really cool. I haven't seen that in years. And it's um, not tied to a specific department, which is the other beauty of it. It's really embodying inclusivity and belonging because any department could teach here. It's meant to be this kind of testing ground, experimental, and engaging all the different groups on campus and how we learn. EUI, Building Envelope Efficiencies, Affordable Construction Materials. Tell me what that means. Sure. So um, this was a design-build project. So that means that a contractor and an architect are paired to go in a competition, if you will, against other contractor and architect teams. And part of the winning solution from the transition of the bridging documents that were done by another architecture firm and what we proposed was how do you get the best energy efficiency out of the building in order to save that money that you would have spent in mechanical cooling or other things supporting that to put that back into learning spaces or supporting student resource spaces is what we call them, the glue space where Students study, they make friends, they get more assistance from their instructors. Those spaces were actually missing when we got the brief because they thought they couldn't afford it. So we, uh, as a team, had our uh, mechanical engineering and sustainability envelope strategist, his name is Stet Sanborn. He came with this idea of not only the efficiency of the envelope itself, which incorporates this technology called green girts. It actually acts as a way to decouple the thermal bridging in, in the facade. That combined with his strategy of vertical oriented windows on the perimeter of the classrooms versus having this giant window in the middle that would create glare. 
he said you could get just as much daylight and views with these vertical windows. So there was a lot of different integrated strategies that helped us achieve this very ambitious UI goal for the building. And that downsized the mechanical equipment and the room itself for that so that we were able to double the informal learning space as well as add two extra classrooms just by making the building more efficient energy-wise. Okay, I'm just totally completely fascinated with the whole design build. That is not something I saw coming out of your mouth, especially on a public project and especially on a project this size. Tell me how that all came down the pipe. How did that go? What did you learn from that? We actually had a debrief with the team. DPR, in this case, was our contractor partner, and they made sure from day one that it was a true collaboration. Roles and responsibilities were defined with our team, even during the pursuit phase of what each party in the team was committed to do. And it really is critical for alignment. Sometimes you get kind of the arranged marriage, if you will, of our musical chairs of who's available. But if you set out to align yourself with partners that have aligned core values and vision, I'll call it, getting the best design, but doing what's practical and best and budget-minded as well. It's this holistic ecosystem for the client. And then also making sure that the client is empowered to make good decisions and timely decisions and that they play a critical part in the whole process. I'm sure you're familiar with the Lean Institute, but this idea of high-functioning teams, we tried to live that and embody that on a consistent basis. So even with a super talented team of folks, if you don't have good communication, if you don't have alignment and explicit communication of expectations, we went over all that in this evaluation. Obviously, nothing is perfect. Things will go south because that's the nature of our world today, especially um, last two years. This building was built during COVID, so they had to shift and adapt and be resilient and think creatively and think differently about the situation that they've been dealt on the construction side. But ultimate success was the student success, student persistence, the instructor's ability to teach the students, and then ultimately this idea of belonging, right? That anybody could go into this building, could access it. It's what we call radical welcoming, (laughs) but that's all enabled by design build. And there's different types of design build. I don't know if the audience is familiar. This was a stip sum, which means that there was a fixed amount committed by the contractor and uh, architecture design team with consultants. But then there's also another kind of variation called progressive design build or collaborative design build, which even with its nuances, we prefer that methodology because we believe you can even get stronger collaborative teamwork where everybody has a uh, stake in the game. Right. So um, at the end of the day, would you choose this method over another one? Or do you, you know, at the end of, you know, nothing, if you have a great partner, perfect. (laughs) If you have a trusted relationship and it is a equally yoked exchange and you have a client that is knowledgeable about the benefits and is a willing team member, then yes. I think every delivery model has its Achilles heel, but when you get down to it, it's setting it up right, creating a project charter. We didn't necessarily have a charter for this project, but we learned about project charters subsequently for other projects that we shared with this client and they just loved it. They're like, yes, from now on, we're going to do project charters to set up expectations and keep each other accountable. 
And so I would say, yes, I'm a fan of design build, but also iterating and ideating about how to make it better. Absolutely. I always felt like if we could get that kind of makeup of a team, that one of these more integrated approaches, whether it's a design build or whether it's IPD or that kind of mindset going at a project would be a far better way to do a project. Yes. Absolutely. You know, we're getting out of our silos and it would, <laughs> Lord knows we need to do that in, in everything that we do, you know, get out of our, get out of our box and learn and grow and, and do these things together. But, and I think there's a stigma amongst architects that the architects lose their design control if the contractor is the prime and we have to fall underneath the contractor. Right. And I would say, again, if you have a good respecting partner in the relationship of this design build, you're actually going to be empowered to do better design. And I believe it was so in this case, especially because we came up with some really crazy ideas that actually got implemented because the contractor believed in those design ideas with us. You, you said a key thing there too, because I, I understand what you you mean about architects feeling like they're not gonna be able to do their design. On the flip side of that coin, contractors, whether it's a true perception or not, think that architects can never stop designing. Yes. <laughs> and uh, again, this model kind of puts a checks and balances on both sides. Let's get there together. Let's make this great building because it's going to look good for the architect and the contractor if, if it turns out to be this incredible, innovative building. That's right. But let's help each other. You know, architects aren't cost estimators. They're not up on the latest and greatest of every building cost and every product. And I, I think there's some real benefits if you have a great team to bringing them together. And, and like you said, it, great relationship. You were able to do these innovative things, which I'm now going to ask you about <laughs> because that kind of kind of halfway leads into my next question about, you know, what were some of the design challenges or successes or, you know, tell me some of the interesting things you did on this building. Yes. We'll start on the outside and then we'll work our way in. But on the outside, budget was a huge challenge, but we knew we wanted to innovate on the sustainability side and on the energy efficiency side. So how do you navigate the two? Um, in addition to what I told you about the envelope system being super efficient, it was the finished materials as well, right? How much we had a lot of surface area to cover in this four-story building, what materials would be not only appropriate to the campus, but budget-friendly, and so we looked around the site and the context, and it was actually interesting with these temporary buildings that they're called surge buildings on campus. They use a corrugated metal that obviously was painted and looks dated and run down and beat up. But that corrugated metal gave us an idea like, well, what if we took that corrugated metal and made it special? There's like different fluting patterns now and you could play with the color. And so the design strategy was to take this everyday barn, you know, industrial agri agricultural material and give it a facelift, give it a new image, if you will. The result was beautiful. We had a great collaboration with the manufacturer's team. It was still budget friendly because we picked three different flute patterns that were alternating and it created this Fibonacci pattern. And then we were able to pick up three colors. We negotiated that, you know, with the contractor, but it was still within the budget to get three colors. So with three colors and then three different flute patterns, we were able to create something that looks nothing like what you think corrugated metal would look like. And that's like uh, the majority of the building with another composite flat panel material that's supposed to look like stone. So there's like a compliment. Can you tell me who, who 
the manufacturer was of the panels? Sure, sure. Um, Morin panels, they are owned by Kingspan, I believe now. And you were able to do that within budget. That's pretty incredible. Yes. Were they standard panels they already had? Or they were, they were standard panels in their line. Yeah. So oh, that cool. was the rule book, if you will. Use standard products, use standard paint finishes, nothing custom. But within that, how do you create variation that is what we see in nature, right? Um, it's not one color. It's two or three or four or five colors, right? We tried to be you know, budget conscious, so we went down to three. But the same with the fluting pattern, right? We see variation in nature. And so getting that randomness was kind of the beauty of this off-the-line system with this design play. Well, in that whole industrial kind of, it's almost a building you would expect to see on a farm. And it right. being, I mean, I'm not saying yours <laughs> looks like a farm building, but you know what I mean? Just that kind of concept fits so much into the kind of school yes. that it is. So tell me about some of the other unique features. Uh, we have a bifacial PV panel array. So bifacial is one of the newer technologies where the panel has two faces, thus the bi, where the, it converts solar to um, electric energy, right? So one is the direct sunlight and two is the bounce, the reflection off of whatever paving surface. And then it goes up and it collects on the underside. So the beauty of this product is that it's sandwiched in glass so it almost looks like a skylight with this film in the middle that is the bifacial product, right? And therefore, it looks lighter than a heavy roof structure with the traditional PV panels on top. It doubles as a canopy, a shade structure for this area and this region where there's a large diurnal swing, meaning the low temperature and the high temperature for the day is like sometimes up to 40 degrees. So it gets really hot during the day. And if there is no shade, students will not hang out outside. So one of the design challenges was how do we create extra space for students to hang out and study or eat their lunch with it being hospitable? So the bifacial panel not only serves to generate energy as kind of a teaching tool for the future of sustainability, but it also serves as this friendly stair stadium, I'll call it space, where you know there's steps next to it, but then there's these giant bleachers uh, where students can eat their lunch, talk to other students, hang out. And then for special events, we were joking around that they should do movie night, you know, or have, you know, improv and et cetera. But it's totally conducive to that. I actually used to specify those panels, but they weren't they weren't making them like that when I was specifying them because there was no catching it on the flip side in the bounce. Yeah, yeah. That's a super innovative way to gather even more energy, of that yeah. energy. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. So anything else on the outside that's really cool? Because it's like... Well, there's lots of sunshades. As I mentioned before, the vertical windows, that was part of the strategy where a lot of light gets in to bounce off the walls. Like you have light shelves, but think of it as a vertical light shelf. Still lots of great views. So it felt you know open from the classroom side, but also looking at the building, it didn't feel institutional. It felt really inviting because it had a lot of these vertical windows, but it also reduced glare. So the sun shading elements were supporting that whole sustainable strategy, but they were done in a way that was light to the touch and not overtly like heavy, if you will. 
Flair is such a huge thing, too. I worked on a swimming pool building years ago, and um, the architects put these small square windows around the whole perimeter at the top of the building. Well, nobody did any kind of light study. And pool opened, and it happened to be in my school district where I was raising my kids. Oh, cool. So I go to a, I go to a water polo match for my kids in the sun. About 4 in the afternoon, the sun, sun would come in at just the right angle that that glare hit the water and blinded everybody in the room oh, no. and nobody could see anything. And they wanted to bring some light in was the intent. Right. So it wasn't just this box. And it was the last piece on that campus they were building. So they were kind of out of money. So there wasn't much for extras. Yeah. And they ended up having to put shades on all the windows. The irony, right, of it all. Yeah. <laughs> all this, All this to put shades on the windows because for whatever reason, that piece got missed or nobody thought about that. So tell me a little bit about wow me things on the inside that are, you know, unique and different. What kind of products or what could you, you we keep talking about making it an inclusive space. Yeah. And I know you. <laughs> so I know that you looked at things nobody else would ever think to look at. So now you have to tell me all your secrets. So the main feature inside the building this Z-shaped circulation for lack of a better analogy that people can't see because they're not looking at the plan, is where we tied together the two main parts of the building. There's like a large lecture volume, and then there's the other flat floor type classrooms on the other volume. So in between there, there's like a Z circulation pattern. And the unique thing about that, we called it the wall of learning, because we believed that learning happens everywhere. So outside of the classroom, what we did was we made these alcoves that would have been deep spaces for, you know, the entry vestibules, like into the large lecture halls, we made those study alcoves. So there's like different sizes and shapes of those alcoves in this wall of learning along this Z-shaped circulation, what we'll call phone booths, where they literally look like a Superman phone booth, but it has a desk and a chair in it. And it's just the right size for one, maybe two people to squeeze in and plug in and study before an exam or a class. Then there's like the collaborative touchdown spaces with proper tables and chairs where you could open up your laptop and have like two to three people collaborating and studying with you. Right. And there's marker boards on like every other wall surface. There's plug points anywhere you look for this idea that learning happens everywhere. And that everybody who, especially the commuter students who don't have a place to go between classes, it's not an amenity. It's a necessity space as we speak in Jedi terminology and, and thought processes as especially with basic needs being so critical in California and the high cost of living, there's a lot of commuter students and they might live you know, close to campus, but still have to drive in. They have no place to be. This is an inviting place where we really try to reinforce belonging. And then the feature element that I'm going to talk about next, my design partner, Bill Cates, he dubbed it the piano noble, which only architects would know and geek out over. It's like, what is a piano noble? The contractor asked us. But at the end of it, they are using the term piano noble, um, is this idea of the ground floor. So we actually have two stair stadium seating areas. One is inside and the other one I talked about on the outside so that somebody could literally zip through the whole building going up to the second floor. And the second floor feels like a first floor. It doesn't feel like a quieter second floor. You have two primary circulation zones. And what that does is because of the large volume of kids coming in and out of those large lecture halls, they only have 10 minutes to change periods. 
you can imagine it's kind of like the running of the bulls. But with two (laughs) main circulation paths along this wall of learning, they can go upstairs, they can go downstairs. There's so many which ways that they can get in and around and not feel congested. Or if somebody's studying, they don't feel like people are crowding over them or getting into their zone or their space. It would be really cool if they did all of our buildings kind of with that mindset. You know, you're talking about learning happens everywhere. And I've always been a firm believer in that. I always joke when I go to conferences, sure, I go to all of these educational sessions and learn all kinds of things, but all the real good stuff happens with all the different people I get to meet and talk to and, or I'm speaking and somebody comes up and asks me a question. And I mean, I don't listen to my podcasts. But I'm going to re-listen to this one because you've said about 10 things and I can't take notes while I'm talking to you <laughs> that I want to go look at and, and check out and explore. But it's such an innovative approach to a building that I don't think a lot of architects have. Thank you. In, in whatever the space is, being an inclusive space and a comfortable space and something that works with how we really live yeah, as opposed to somebody's program. Absolutely. And the proof was with the kids too. So the other differentiator is that we met with the students early in the design development process and we got their feedback. So we got the pizza out, we got the VR goggles out. We went to the student union one day, we camped out all day and we had boards up, we had post-its for them to write on. We you know, just reached out to people randomly. Hey, you wanna be in the VR simulation, right? And so we got their feedback and that actually got incorporated into the building uh, where the interior stair stadium seats, they're like, oh, it'd be great if there was actually padding on them to be more comfortable. And so that was on there. And they actually ended up doing different things than we envisioned. They actually took naps uh, when it first opened and we were doing photography. People were comfortable enough to take cat naps on the stair stadium. And that was like a true measure of belonging when they treat it as if they're home away from home. Exactly. I'm, I'm I'm in my living room waiting for the next class totally. and I feel comfortable yes. enough to, I, I don't know if I, I personally would do ever do that in public because I'd probably roll down the stairs or something crazy, but I love that. So tell me a little bit, what were some of, as, as you started designing for these things you wanted, what were some of the more challenging aspects of this building to go from what you're envisioning in your head to get to what you wanted? Even with our strong team, you're you're correct. Absolutely. There were definitely challenges, i.e. the circulation zone that we just talked about. How do you make it feel open like that when you're dealing with fire codes, right? And fire life safety. Right. And the code says X, Y, Z. And so you're not allowed to have furniture in the exit path of travel, right? So that's why we had the alcoves. But then the other feature was the separation between a large lecture hall needing to exit from the second floor and not having that direct exit to the outside, right? So we had to negotiate with the you know, state fire marshal, uh, DSA, et cetera, about this wand door that we ended up using. You know, So when there's a fire, this door comes out of the wall and it creates that fire separation. But the interpretation of that and what one person deems as a solution versus, you know, a code official. There was a lot of negotiation, let's say that. And I thank our team uh, for being persistent and creative because it it did follow the letter of the code. We didn't, there was no uh, back channel or anything, but it was really believing and explaining 
and taking the time to establish that trust with the authorities, you know, having jurisdiction to convince them that we had a sound, safe building, even with this strategy, if that makes any sense. Right. And unfortunately, codes um, are sometimes not always super crystal clear in detail. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so they're open to in- interpretation, but it's great that that you were able to get it there. Were there any other unique kind of products you used? I know that you were staying in, in standard lines for manufacturers' products, but were there any other interesting things you used on the building that just kind of stand out? I would say this is another feature that was an innovation. This is the second project academic building where we applied multi-stall all-gender restrooms. And so with those types of restrooms, the zero sight line partition, and a lot of companies make them now, but those are kind of the evolution, I think, of where restrooms are going and making everybody feel comfortable, regardless of if it's a binary gender restroom or a multi-stall all-gender restroom. People just need privacy. So I think there's a sway of, hey, spend more on your partitions because people do care about those things. One of the responses we got from the student feedback was, I love the bathrooms. And and we had a lot of debate about that too. So generally we were proposing it on all floors, but there's obviously a debate about comfort level of old culture versus, you know, new generation culture. And the final, you know, design outcome was that there was an every other floor solution for the multi-stall with the binary gender traditional restrooms. And there's also the single occupancy, all gender on those floors with the, the traditional binary layout. And then that way there was a lot of choice and freedom of choice for everyone. So you just had to go up a floor or down a floor if there wasn't a restroom that you were comfortable going in. But it was also supported by this idea that there's products out there that can be part of the solution. Well, and I think that's a, a great way to start bridging that gap. Yes. Unfortunately, as much as we would like to just change the world overnight, some people don't want to let us do that. <laughs> but, it, I, you know, finding the solutions in that compromise is just another testament to the teamwork of everybody on the team. That's right. Making sure everybody felt that they're heard, but also that there was a solution that everybody felt comfortable with was a, a journey, but it was a great journey of understanding where everybody was coming from. Well, I think that's how people do learn and grow and open their minds more is, is to go on that journey. Yes. You have to be willing to go on the journey to get better. So tell me about construction. What did you get hit with and how did you work through it? I would say we had a great team period in terms of coming up with a plan. You know, things will happen the future is not promised, but we make plans anyway. I'm quoting Lin-Manuel Miranda because I try to live by that <laughs> mantra. <laughs> um, so when COVID hit, project sites shut down. And luckily, um, the academic buildings were one of the first in line to get approved to open back up again. DPR was great as a partner with the strict safety protocols, you know, even the temperature checking, masking, and, you know, all the PPE and making sure everybody was safe and comfortable. But also they were very quick technology-wise to use Teams, you know, and, and virtual communication as a way to keep going. So definitely there are things that they did in terms of being able to do logistics, 
safety first, obviously, is one of the paramount things of construction. So they were very good about, you know, tracking and monitoring and, you know, certain things in the building had to change HVAC systems, filtration, et cetera. But again, the team was very dynamic in responding to the client perspective and what needed to change, but they were very responsive. And then I would say, you know, there's coordination with the entire campus because this building is literally smack dab in the middle of campus. A lot of bicyclists, a lot of pedestrians, both student and faculty members and visitors in and around the site all the time. And it visually needed to be accessible so people could see what was happening, but also safe so that nobody was getting hurt crossing these vital areas. And even like major utilities at the beginning of the project needed to be shut down to connect new utilities and all that needed to be coordinated with the campus, right? So a lot of air traffic control in terms of all the things that needed to happen next to another construction project, which is behind this building, which is another team altogether. But talk about like having to share vital avenues of in and out for supplies and the supply chain, right? Um, luckily, we we're at the tail end of, you know, seeing that impact of the supply chain. But I think certain things luckily were ordered ahead of time, anticipating those challenges. Looking back on your process and solutions and the ups and downs of the building and the spaces that you created, what would you do different the next time or what would you do sooner or what would you look at that this building made you not have thought before that you needed to look at? I'm a little biased because this was probably one of the stronger projects that I've worked on. You know, the problem child project, right? That just never has a good day, (laughs) right? This project was the flip side was like the A student child, if you will, that, you know, outside of COVID had little of any issues in terms of the things that we set out to do and the things we were able to accomplish. They were down to the detail level. And I think when you get down to the detail level, you know, you've worked out all the bigger picture fundamentals that you're able to scrutinize the details. So there was a lot of detail scrutinizing for wearability and making sure that It looked good, but it was able to last the test of time and wear and tear and, you know, just function of a large scale university, right? So there was a lot of debate about materials that like wood, we had wood for uh, surrounds around portals to signify to students that you go in this way, but the wood edge, we used apple ply, right? There was a lot of concern about the wear and tear from the facilities maintenance side, which I totally respect because they have to take care of it that that wouldn't last, right? So there was kind of the need to like share precedence of, you know, projects in the past where we use this product as a portal. There was, you know, the negotiation of like, well, what if we just put a little metal strip on the edge that's the most vulnerable, right? So those types of conversations are back and forth about those little details that everybody cares about at the end of the day. Well, it's it's a testament to you that you got facilities involved and asked them because schools take a beating. And nobody knows what kind of beating they take better than the facilities person. Absolutely. But on the flip side, the fear is that it looks institutional, right? That it looks like you don't trust or value the student, that they need to be protected against themselves, right? So that institutionality also affects students in ways that we don't realize. Yeah, well, where, where do you feel more comfortable? You feel more comfortable in a place that feels like your living room or in a square box? You know what I mean? Okay. So you know I'm going to ask you this. Um, 
because you're Rosa Shang, and there is no way we are getting off of this podcast without you telling me about equity by design. You know, for any listeners I have that maybe haven't heard of your efforts, I don't know how that could be possible, or have heard about what you're doing and and how you're trying to help all of us be better. Just tell me a little bit about that. Sure. If you followed our journey, you know, first we questioned and we challenged, then we did research. Then we shared that research and that data with the industry. Then there was process about, well, how do you apply all these things that we're learning through the data into the actual project? And now we're at the stage of actually not only applying it to the project teams, is our project diverse? In this case, we had a predominantly women and I would say underrepresented groups. If you looked at the demographics of the team, not your average team, and then how did they apply that to an empathetic design process, an inclusive design process where we're listening to the users, including students, right? So it's really taking that arc of what we saw as problems in the industry of why people were leaving the profession from you know not having satisfied careers, but also not being valued. And then as an industry, architecture and design not being understood or valued by society at large. So it's this huge arc, but this is the first building actually that has been built since I joined Smith Group and helped to win it with this larger team that embodies all those principles that I was kind of dreaming about when I was cooking up equity by design in the first place. So it's quite a nice- Cooking up? Yes. (laughs) In the back room, is this a breaking bad thing? Um, (laughs) Cooking it up. So I love that. So what you learned with all of these things you've been doing forever with equity by design, this is the first project that where you really took all of that knowledge you gained and tried to implement a project, taking all of that into account. And so I'm assuming addressing everything differently. Yeah. And I'm a spokesperson. I'm not the designer of this project. I had design influence. I had vision about these larger goals, but we had a whole team, right? And it was One of the projects where I could say, you can't name one person as the designer because the group that worked on this project, each person brought design ideas to the table that helped solve the larger problem, you know, and that was an amazing part of the process as well, where traditionally there's the Stark attacks. We know there's people working behind the scenes and actually contributing to design, but there's never the credit given to the entire group of people, right? We always like raise up the pillar of like, oh, the singular superstar genius that came up with this idea. We're here to disrupt that notion. Yeah. You're so right because our whole industry, that building that eventually gets done, gets done with every single person, whether it's somebody's, you know, receptionist, the designer or that drafter that's been stuck drawing stare details for the last five years. You know, all of those, it doesn't happen without everybody, but we don't always, it's very much been historically a top-down, all you people down there work 60, 80 hours a week, and then I'm going to stand up here and take the credit. Oftentimes when, you know, you get to celebrate this project and and changing that mindset to we're all coming together to make this great, people are going to buy into the quality of the work they do when they feel like they can take some ownership of it. I love that. I'm I, I'm gonna fi- I'm gonna find a way to come do one project with you, just one. Okay, my final question. Everybody gets this question: If you were mistress of the universe, 
and could completely change one thing in our industry. Doesn't matter what it is, go big or go small. And everybody absolutely had to do whatever your change is for forevermore. What would that be? Wow, Sharice. That is like the difficult question. With all that's happening, I feel like at the core of it, we've lost our ability to trust and respect each other. So I'll start with that foundational element and it stems from vulnerability, right? Our own vulnerability. So if my wish for the world or the individuals who are listening out there, we can be horrified, we can be exhausted, we could scream at the top of our lungs with frustration at all that's happening around us, but each of us actually is part of the solution. It's not somebody else's problem, it's our problem. And if we reach deep into our vulnerabilities and we're able to put pause on those vulnerabilities and say, I'm going to reach out to somebody else. I'm going to support somebody else in the industry. I want to do things better. I'm going to see people that are around me that need support. I'm going to support them. If we can just turn it around from the me, me, me thing, like my world is falling apart. I'm Definitely there's self-care. There's a balancing act. But at the same time, there's this greater sense of who we are as humanity. The core of humanity is being unraveled and disintegrated right before our eyes with these school shootings, these shootings every other day, quite frankly. And in order for that to stop, it's not somebody else's problem. Each of us needs to stand up and double down on our, our values. And I think if we could do that in architecture, and it's the stand up to say, hey, it's not doors. That's the problem here. You know, how the school is designed is not the reason these horrible things are happening. Yes. And I couldn't, you know, that's, I knew that no matter what I had you come talk to me about, you would move me and you would say things that were notable because now I'm get, kind of getting all choky. But um, sorry, that, that's it. No, no, no. It's great because it's, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't have connected with you more in those words in remembering at the end of the day, it's about the people and yes. the connection and taking care of each other and giving more than you take. If everybody could ground themselves in that empathy, starting with oneself and one's vulnerability, right? Because you can't be empathetic to somebody else if you're stuck in your own vulnerability. So that's why I say start with your own vulnerability. And then with that vulnerability, be brave, speak up. That will allow you to open up and care about other people more. And that care is what I think our industry needs, is to frame the culture of care into what we design. Rosa, thank you so, so much for being here with me today. I'll give you about six months before I call you again. <laughs> Thanks, Sharice. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening, 
We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.